is Andy Wakefield, and this is the Andy Wakefield Podcast. This is a place where stories are told that have never been heard before. Welcome back to the Andy Wakefield Podcast. My name is Lori Gregory, and I'm back here with our fearless leader, Andy Wakefield. Good to be with you again. (laughs) We are so happy to have a chance to welcome our guest this week, a very interesting and brilliant man who's been in this movement for health freedom for a long time, Andy. Mark Blacksell is here with us today. It's wonderful, Mark. So good to have you here. I um, I was just watching you in the new movie the other day. You haven't had a chance to see it. You did an absolutely fabulous job. We hardly had to cut you or do anything to, to, to make it. Very good. Absolutely <laughs> wonderful. Make um, me sound so, better than I really was. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you need did. To, I, I hope you did. Didn't, yes. Didn't need to do anything. You look just look great. Movie comes out on the eighth of July, and uh, get you a screen beforehand. But rest assured, um, you did a wonderful job. Thank you so much. And Mark, the thing I want to talk about today is a fascinating paper that you produced. What I love about is the unexpected. This is lessons from the lockdown. Before giving, we're not going to give the the punchline away, but it's a white paper from Health Choice. It's a fascinating analysis, and it's looking at some of the lessons, some that we are aware of, and some that many people are not aware of. So, Mark, tell me a little bit about your perspective and your intentions going into this analysis. What you what you did? Sure. First of all, I want to acknowledge and give a shout out to my co-author, Amy Becker. Uh, Andy, you might remember her from conferences years ago. She, she and I became friendly and, and uh, we got into a conversation online about the COVID problem. And we were, I think there are a number of us in the the health freedom, health choice advocacy world who are, who have grown and learned to be skeptical of the orthodoxy that comes out of the CDC and public health authorities. They're, they're often wrong. They're often biased. And, and, and this time we were incurring extraordinary economic costs in, you know, with all the lockdown and all of the, the restrictions on personal liberties and freedom. So I have been a skeptic of what people like Anthony Fauci have to say. And so we were questioning what was really going on. And Amy had the very good idea to begin probing all-cause mortality because people get sick with the flu or various cold viruses or upper respiratory infections. And and the, the notion that somehow we've got to take extraordinary measures in an extraordinary time, I think that requires extraordinary proof. And whether or not we count cases or uh, individual deaths, you know, th- there are a lot of intermediate or narrow metrics that can lose the big picture. And the big picture here is how many people are dying? Are we really losing more lives through this pandemic than we typically would in a, in a typical spring or a typical flu season? And so Amy started tracking the data on, and, and it's updated weekly in the CDC's mortality statistics website which is part of their flu monitoring and flu surveillance system. And I think our, our ingoing hypothesis would be that there would not be that large and elevated amount of, of deaths, that, that a lot of this would be overblown. And I think uh, the, the data actually went against that. 
uh, the thing that we learned was that, in fact, there has been something unusual going on. It has had an effect on all-cause mortality, and particularly in a in a the period of March, April, and early May, we saw a measurable and clear spike in deaths in the United States. So that raised some interesting questions, and and what we wanted to do from there. And the CDC gives you an ability to probe the data in a number of ways. One is by state or jurisdiction. Uh, the other is by a broad age categories. And so we tried to locate that spike and say, okay, well, you know, where might that spike be coming from? Is it over? How, you know, how is it doing? And, you know, temporarily, how, what, what is the trend? And we learned a number of things. One is that the spike was pretty sharp and brief in terms of the impact. It's largely behind us and deaths in the beginning you know, towards the end of May and into June are you know, back to normal levels in a, typical, in a typical week in the U.S. But as we looked through the data, it was clear that it did appear that COVID was causing the spike. It's an upper respiratory infection. They would count it alongside the pneumonia and influenza deaths. So pneumonia cases uh, were, were spiking alongside COVID counts. But the really interesting thing is once you started going deeper, and we found that while on average across the whole country, there was an elevated, you know, there was a spike in deaths on the order of, you know, 30 Five forty percent in the la in the peak weeks, but overall, uh, if you just take you know a, a broader period from February to May, the excess mortality was more on the order of five percent, because the spike was you know sharp and upward. It, the beginning of the year was normal, and then it has come off the peak very quickly. So for the for the overall United States, five percent excess mortality is a a meaningful and important number, but it's not as though we're in the middle of a zombie apocalypse. And I just interrupt you briefly there, Mark. This is the first fascinating observation in your paper, the graph on the percent of expe expected deaths, looking state by state. That's there where I was heading. Yes. Extraordinary anomaly yes. here, isn't there? And that is New York City. Yes. Yes. And, and so the thing that we learned is that this effect, the negative effects, the excess mortality has been very localized. In New York City, something extraordinarily bad happened, and there was a spike of extraordinary proportions. And, and something's different about New York City, uh, whether it's the density, whether it's the subway system, whether it's the way patients were routed from hospitals to nursing homes, uh, whether there's some environmental issue. Clearly, something was different in New York City. New Jersey, you know, th there were a handful of states and jurisdictions where the the spikes were, were very sharp. And a, much of it in the Northeastern Corridor. Massachusetts, New York State outside of New York City, Maryland, the District of Columbia. So, you know, a lot of it, six out of the top eight states with excess mortality were in the Northeastern Corridor. But then that list drops off pretty sharply. And you see that, you know, some of the bigger states, Florida, California, Texas, had relatively moderate rates of excess mortality. You know, in, in fact, hardly measurable in the overall scheme of things. A lot of the states that did not impose aggressive lockdowns 
in fact, all of the states that didn't didn't take extreme measures uh, showed a relatively normal mortality profile. So you, you, uh, the, the deeper we dug into the, the pattern, there were many states that had a below average mortality level for you know for this period of time. So uh, so some unexpected findings and a lot of variation around an average that was clearly concerning. Right. So, so, so two really important things to emerge so far is this extraordinary effect in New York. And one cannot help but think that the policy of taking people convalescing from COVID-19 infection and putting them back into nurses' homes, in fact, making that a, a kind of policy by Cuomo, yeah. that putting them back into nursing homes, infecting people who were known to be at high risk, that is the elderly, leading to deaths. I mean, I, I hope that there will be an inquiry about this. I doubt whether he will advocate for it, but it's extraordinary to see Cuomo on television talking about how New York led the charge and set an example for the rest of the country about the handling of, of COVID-19. Clearly, it was a very bad example. I, I, this has to be explained, and if we're going to learn any lessons from that. And then the second point you made is that states that had very modest or no lockdown do not appear to have had a mortality in excess of that, that those did have did have lockdown. And that says, again, a lot for the policy yeah. and what we need to take away from this. I don't, think, see, I don't think it was a bad thing to adopt a very cautious approach to this in the early months when they didn't know. And it was yeah. perfectly reasonable to try and protect people. But then beyond that time when the data was coming in and they knew what was going on, then to pursue that policy, intensify that policy with the known consequences for the economy, that then became bad policy. Yeah, and I, I would say, Andy, I think we knew even before coronavirus hit the United States that it, it was an age-segmented risk profile, that, that young people, especially children, barely were affected. There, there was no excess mortality at all and often asymptomatic situations. And all of the, you know, the vast majority of the excess mortality was in the elderly. And so the right policy would have focused on that, protecting vulnerable people and, and not putting them at risk by circulating infectious patients around through some misguided capacity management. Yeah, I think the hysteria you know, the the fact that they hyped this thing, that it was in the news, that you know we it was the next you know killer virus of uh, you know, it was the great pandemic of the century. I I think the you know the the fear, uh, the overreaction that caused all of these extreme actions led to you know, led to dumb decision making. To continue listening to this podcast, please go to patreon.com, Andy Wakefield Podcast, and become a subscriber. For $5 a month, you will have access to all of our podcast content and other special events.